Hello and welcome to the Sky Time podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the podcast that aims to share information and experiences within the Sky community during the COVID-19 crisis. In a few weeks, Sky Time will chart the transition from lockdown through the recovery phase as we celebrate all the people, places and providers that make Sky such a great place to live, work and visit. My guest this week is Kate Forbes, MSP. She's represented Sky, La Haba and Badenoch since 2016. Her meteoric rise through the political ranks saw her first appointed Minister for Public Finance and the Digital Economy in June 2018. On the 6th of February this year, she had to step in to deliver the Scottish Government's budget when Derek Mackay was forced to resign. Later that month, she was formally appointed Cabinet Secretary for Finance, a role that would become pivotal in dealing with the economic fallout from the COVID-19 crisis. Kate, welcome to the SkyTime podcast. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. If I could start with your background, you were born in Glasgow but spent quite a bit of your childhood in India. What was the experience like as a child? I moved around a lot when I was growing up. So a little bit in Dingwall, a little bit in Glasgow and quite a few years in India. So I think I was under six weeks old. So my parents were obviously the adventurous type. They were working there and they'd come back to Scotland to have me and then take me back to India. So I spent the first few years of my life in India, very formative years. There are great little home videos of me running around with a great Indian accent, this little blonde Scot. And then back to Scotland for Gaelic medium education before we returned to India later on. Your father provided health care to people who couldn't afford it. Did those scenes of social injustice influence your early political thinking, even though you were in your teens? Absolutely. Probably unconsciously so as well. Because when you are 10, 11 years old and you're walking to school and you see families under tarpaulin shacks, or you see children doing child labour, it can't but have an impact on you. And it was very striking for a little Scottish girl who'd perhaps been used to accessing the welfare state, being able to go to school, having a very structured, regimented life in Scotland, to see the fact that not everybody lived in the same way. And that, for me, still strikes home on anything I'm working on, because it reminds me that there is so much vulnerability and fragility in the world. Did a career in politics enter your mind at that point? No, it didn't. And my family aren't necessarily political with a capital P, but we have always debated, argued, thought, read, and, you know, we've got a competitive streak in us combined with a concern for the most vulnerable in society. And I've always been inspired by my dad. And ultimately, my dad gave up a a reasonable job aged 29 and went to volunteer in India for about 20 years, unpaid, working with the, the most marginal in society for no fame or money or anything else. So he's always been one of my inspirations, and I suppose it's that motivation to serve other people which made me eventually get into politics, although I realise politicians don't always have a great reputation for public service. 
At university, you first studied history at Cambridge and then diaspora and migration studies at Edinburgh. Was this another sign of your interest in, in social injustice? I've always been interested in people, their stories, their motivations, why things happen as they did. And being from the Highlands, I've always had a fascination with Highland history. So I was always keen to study migration and the movements of human beings, as it were, across the world. So that was a reason for going to study. But ultimately, it paved the way to doing what I do now, because my job now is just listening to people's stories and trying to help, yes. But a lot of it is just getting alongside people. And I guess studying history, that's what you're doing but 200 years ago. But after university, you turned your back on changing the world for a while and trained as an accountant. Was there a sense that you needed a proper career? I sold my soul. No, (laughs) I had done history, obviously loved it, loved reading and and writing and people, but realised that I wasn't particularly well suited to teach or to be a librarian or to work in a museum. And as I went through the various careers open to me as a history graduate, I realised none of them appealed. So I went and uh, just applied for a number of different jobs, had always vowed I'd go nowhere near accounting and uh, actually ended up on a, an accounting training course. So did my, my three years of uh, chartered accountant training whilst working in a bank. So at what point did you decide that politics actually was the calling and it wasn't accountancy? Well, I never, I don't think I ever thought accounting was the the calling, but obviously I'd never lost my interest in how the people of the Highlands were being served, whether I felt they were being served well or badly, or in some of those big policy issues around how you reach out and help folks that need help, how you build a society that does ensure nobody falls through the cracks, that everybody has the opportunity to thrive and to prosper and to do well, particularly in a Highland context with its rural um, and remote nature and its history of mass migration. So that had never left me. And I got involved a little bit with, with the SNP in the past. And therefore, when it came to uh, a vacancy for the seat of Skyle Harbour and Badenoff, which is the seat where my family live, where I grew up and which I have a, a very close connection to, I thought, well, it's time to stop talking and debating around the family table and around dinner, just get stuck in. And very quickly, you realise that it's one thing to talk about it. It's quite another to put those words into action. You were selected from an, an all-female shortlist to stand for the SNP in the seat. How did you find the campaigning side of politics? Well, it was all new. So being a candidate for the first time was a steep learning curve. I discovered the wonders of working with the press for the first time when I think it was the Daily Express published their introductory piece on me, introducing me as another young mother from the Highlands, which was news to my own mother who didn't know she had grandchildren (laughs) and doesn't have grandchildren. So the wonders of investigative journalism there or or campaigning. And I I went campaigning with a, a very senior male politician, definitely double my age. And the first door we knocked on, the door swung open and a lady came to the door and said, to meet your wife for the first time and there I was as a candidate definitely not as his wife so it was a steep learning curve I've got a vast constituency 
And I had one goal and that was to knock on as many doors as possible. And that's what we did. So five days a week, we were out there in the wind, in the rain, knocking on doors and meeting people. And it worked. You increased the SNP's majority. You entered Parliament at the age of 26. What were your expectations and, and plans as you entered Parliament for the first time? My ambition was very simple. And it was to get to know my constituency inside out, to spend as much time as possible in the constituency, to meet as many people. So I started doing as many surgeries as I could do in as many places in the constituency as possible every Friday and Saturday, often staying over somewhere in order to make the most of the time, just getting out and hearing about the issues that were were facing people. And obviously, at that time, there were some very serious, significant issues. So that the healthcare issues in Sky being an obvious example, it was just as as tourism was really taking off big questions around the number of tourists as well, supporting the tourist economy. And I've often always thought that you cannot make decisions behind a day. You have got to be there in the thick of it, speaking to the ordinary people who would never consider contacting their MSP, but who usually have the best intel and perspective on things. So that was that was my first ambition. And the first two years, that was really all I did. You know, obviously combined with being in Parliament Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays, lots of travel up and down the constituency, um, as well as up and down to Edinburgh. Did you feel supported by the older, more experienced MSPs? Being elected is a fascinating experience because there is no handbook. There is no guide. There is no training course. You're thrown in, in the deep end. And from 6am when you're elected in Ross County Stadium in May 2016, you yourself have to contend with the media, with your colleagues, with the parliamentary system, everything from how you actually vote in a a parliamentary vote, all the way through to hiring people for the first time, finding office space. And you're a one woman or a one man band, ultimately, because nobody else can answer that difficult question for you when the media asks. Nobody else can press that button to vote except you. And whilst there's great camaraderie and dare I say it, right across the party spectrum, close friendships and across party boundaries. Despite that, ultimately, you're the one that needs to figure it out and you sink or swim in that goldfish bowl with everybody watching. You've spoken openly about the impact of social media comment and, I guess, trolling of politicians. Describe what you've had to put up with. I don't think I'm unique in that regard, but I think social media means that people fear, feel far more open and able to make comments that they would never make in person. So often I've actually met people or spoken to people who have been so vitriolic and abusive of social media, but in person they're very sheepish. Or people who have not realised that they're sitting next to me at something having previously been identified as somebody who is who's very abusive. And it's just, it's the nature of it. And I think people disconnect the person they see on TV or in the news from the human being that we are. We are ultimately daughters, mothers, wives, uh, friends. And I think some of that 
particularly takes on a, a gendered nature just because people are so creative in their abuse they're very creative with their with their vitriol and their anger and so everything from you know, questioning what I wear or how I walk or how I speak or comparing me with other things or objects or animals you know I don't think you should get used to it but unfortunately it does come with the job but I am utterly convinced it is the most significant reason why a younger generation do not want to go near politics in terms of getting elected and particularly women don't want to be elected. It was only going to get worse for you the higher your profile was raised and on the 6th of February this year you had to step in to deliver the Scottish budget when Derek Mackay was forced to resign. Talk me through how you learned that you would be delivering the budget. Well the night before I had just completed stage three so the final stage of a significant piece of legislation it was a non-domestic rape bill. So I was speaking at something I was in a bit of a celebratory mood having got the bill through, thinking that next day was the budget and I could almost enjoy it without anything to do. And then obviously overnight, that huge story broke. And at 7am, obviously there had been some some discussions before then, but at 7am, I got the call from the chief of staff to confirm that that day at 2.40pm, I would be delivering the budget. And because I'd been so involved with my own legislation, I actually hadn't been as close to the budget as I had been in previous years. So between 7am and 2.40pm, I had one job, and that was to wrap my mind around every line of the budget, every new tax rate, every justification for spend in order to then deliver a 30-minute budget statement and take about an hour of questions, which are some of the most political questions because... This is obviously one of the the biggest set pieces in the parliamentary calendar. Did Nicola Sturgeon and the rest of the party throw all the resources at you to give you the support that you needed to prepare for, not so much the delivering of the speech, but the the Q&As afterwards? Everybody was very supportive and very kind, and indeed, again, across party boundaries. And I ended up having to switch my phone off because every good luck message reminded me how high the stakes were and probably made me more nervous so I turned them off but they were very good very supportive ultimately though it's as I said before you're the one standing on that podium nobody can help you when you're standing on that podium so I had the budget document in front of me I had a a list of questions I was asking officials for answer and I just went through it by myself essentially in a room with one other person in the room uh, with me and crammed until 2.40 p.m. Can you remember what your emotions were that night when it was all over? Remarkably flat. After it was all finished at about 5 p.m., that was a sense of relief. But actually, that was just the start of the process. So we were due to then go to committee the following Wednesday, And that is a different event because it is far more detailed. So I was there for over two hours, I think. And that's going into the the detail with, again, committee members just trying to get answers, but also trying to catch you out on the detail. So I knew that although I delivered a statement, 
there were still a number of parliamentary hurdles to overcome. And the biggest hurdle of all, a deal. Later that month, you were formally appointed Cabinet Secretary for Finance. To what extent did you feel ready for the role? That's a brilliant question, because I do believe that if you're going to do a new job, you should be as prepared as possible. And there's no harm in an extra few years figuring out uh, the parliament, figuring out politics, figuring out your constituency. So I wouldn't have been disappointed at having had a few more years to get to grips with the various aspects of my role. However, it's a great honour, it's a great privilege. I've had to learn quickly, it's been a very steep learning curve, but ultimately you need to be honest, you need to seek guidance and advice, and you need to be confident in the judgments that you make. A month later, and we enter the biggest health and economic crisis in in generations. Take me inside the cabinet post-lockdown and the discussions that were had on the economy and what you were going to do. Before lockdown, those conversations were happening because our own budget came to an end at the beginning of March. The following, within a matter of days, the UK government had published its budget. And as you'll remember, there was a huge injection of cash announced in that budget. And within a matter of days, we had announced our own support. Now that was then overcome within a week again as the UK government transformed its own package of support. So those conversations were taking place well before lockdown. And they were looking at the immediate impact on the economy and businesses, because obviously this hit the hospitality, leisure and tourism industries before lockdown, well before lockdown. So those conversations were about the best way of supporting. And when you don't have unlimited resources, how you tailor that support to those who are being hardest hit. But as you can imagine, over the course of the next few weeks, that conversation has moved from the initial response to how we get into recovery. And it's too early to talk in precise details about recovery. But as you'll have seen from last week, the Scottish government's published a document on the principles for recovery. And obviously that applies to the economy because we recognise economic harm that's being waged in the wake of the pandemic. With those early announcements of the support from the Scottish government, looking back on it now, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently? Well, the first package of support, which was announced, I think, the the weekend after the UK government's budget, was saw us trying to use our resources and push it as far as possible. So, for example, in that initial package, the UK government had done a cut-off of 51k in rateable value. We moved it to 69k in rateable value. But then, within a matter of days, they had reintroduced a new package. And our biggest challenge as the Scottish government is... We get no advance notice of these announcements. We get no indication of A, what the UK government's going to do, or indeed what the Barnet consequences will be. So sometimes there's a delay. And obviously we're under enormous pressure to copy what the UK government has done and announce our own package. But you can't always do that instantly if you don't have the full allocation of Barnet consequentials confirmed. I think the huge frustration in those early days were that we were dealing with the pressure and the anxiety of 
hundreds of thousands of businesses. And at the same time, sometimes they waiting either for Barnet to be confirmed or trying to understand how the UK government's announcements had an impact on Scotland. So I think going back, what we now have with the UK government is a very close working relationship. In those early days, if we'd had that, I think it would have made our jobs a lot easier. We might even have been able to do announcements at the same time. Bringing things home to Sky now, part of your constituency, obviously, how mindful were you of the seasonal nature of the economy when making decisions? Hugely aware of the seasonal nature of the economy. I mean, if you look at Sky's economy over the last 20 years or so, the big debate at the heart of the the tourism industry in the last few years has been, wait a minute, there's huge opportunities here. There's the number of tourists that are coming, great opportunities for businesses. And for me, that goes to the heart of the debate on population. Because if you've got jobs, got well-paid, meaningful jobs, you retain your population, you attract new people into the area. When you do that, you build up the population and that sustains the public services. So for me, the tourism industry goes right to the heart of the debate on how we retain our population. But that tourism industry thrives between the two shoulder periods of, as it were, March and autumn. And although those shoulder periods have been pushed in the last few years, this is still a very, very fragile economy. And a lot of businesses were just starting to make substantial investments in the last two, three years in light of the growth. And so this year, for it not only to hit right at the beginning of the seasonal tourism industry, but also to hit just a few years into growth means that people have invested in good faith and have been hit hard. Some of Sky's biggest tourism employers are falling through the cracks and may not be able to retain the levels of employment. The big hotels, they don't qualify for these business grants. Why? I'm I'm very mindful of that in particular. When it came to our support, as I said, a lot of that is based on the funding that's allocated to us. So the challenge with the Scottish government finances is that we can't borrow, we can't create headroom really quickly in order to generate revenue. So we're trying to do that for health, we're trying to do that for economic support, but ultimately those quick rapid injections of support are based on Barnet consequentials. So therefore we get a funding package and I've got to, with good judgment, make that money go as far as But it will always mean two things. It will mean, firstly, that I cannot replace everybody's lost income. And secondly, it means that you've got to build in thresholds. Now, our thresholds reflect either the UK government's thresholds or the tax system in Scotland. So the non-domestic rate system where the cutoff for the small business bonus is £18,000 in rateable value. But I recognise, because I tell you, my inbox talk a block with emails on everybody's concerns and worries, that there is an issue with that 51k um, of rateable value. And that's why over the last few weeks, what I've been doing is identifying where I can find resource quickly to try and support businesses falling through the cracks. Now, the £100 million that we announced two weeks ago is precisely 
trying to do that. It's looking at the businesses, large and small, that are either not on the non-domestic rate system or are too big for the non-domestic rates um, grant scheme. And I think that the two I would identify is, one, the support for pivotal enterprises. So on Sky, there will be businesses that we can all identify that sustain a supply chain. They sustain lots of jobs. And if they collapse, then the ripple effect across the Sky economy is profound. And that pivotal enterprises fund, the pivotal enterprise resilience fund, 45 million, is designed not just to provide a cash injection, but to look at what else that business going. And I heartily recommend some of the businesses that I think you're thinking of and that I'm thinking of in Sky just now, but I'm not going to name, because I'll end up missing out some, who are those pivotal enterprises and act as anchors for the Sky economy. That fund is for them. So just to be absolutely clear, you're saying that there won't be any change to this RV51 threshold. These businesses will have to access support through other schemes. If more funding becomes available, the first thing I will do is look at how I raise that threshold. I can't do it just now as I try and sustain the health service, welfare support and financial support with the limited resources that we have. So what we've tried to do is do things differently. And that's why I'd recommend people in the first instance going to the Pivotal Enterprises support But this is an issue that Fergus Ewing and I have both raised with the Treasury, because if they were to shift that 51k in reasonable value, then so could we. Moving on to the self-catering sector, they're feeling a bit unloved by government at the moment. As of a few days ago, only 37% of applications for grant support were approved. The criteria for support seems to be incredibly stringent from what we're hearing. Is there another agenda at play here? The only agenda at play here is to make sure that as many businesses in Scotland get support, as many genuine businesses as possible get support. And as somebody who's responsible for managing public finances, I can't in good faith justify money going to non-genuine businesses when I know how many hundreds of genuine businesses are still waiting for support. And so when it comes to support, we we made a number of changes. For example, on the non-domestic rates role, you have things like ATMs, billboards, bare ground, all which could have applied for a £10,000 grant. That's such a waste of money. So we removed them. Then we looked at other businesses. And the challenge with the non-domestic rates system is that it's ineffectively blunt and broad. So the self-catering category does include, whatever anybody says, it does include empty, vacant second homes in places like Sky. And you may have seen some of the news headlines, particularly in England, the FT, BBC, reporting that potentially hundreds of millions of pounds were being claimed by city dwellers for their second home in the country. That is money it's not going to genuine businesses and money that I want to make sure goes to the genuine self-caterers, goes to the genuine B&Bs, goes to the genuine hotels rather than to the second home owners. So we therefore, and from the beginning I said 
And I was asked about it on Good Morning Scotland and BBC the day after the application came out. From the beginning, I said, I've not forgotten self-caterers, but I'm going to have to do this in a slightly different way. And I think some of the headlines coming out of England and Wales have justified that approach. And you'll have seen, I believe, I don't have the details to hand, but Wales has retrospectively since then changed its own guidance on self-catering to ensure that that money goes to, to those that actually have a genuine self-catering business that is contributing to the local economy. Will you ensure that the councils who are administering this scheme have clear guidelines so that genuine self-catering businesses do not miss out on support? Yes is the short answer. Having developed a scheme at pace, normally parliaments have time to consult, they have time to test their schemes. With this, we have tried to do our consultation as we've developed it in order to get the money out quickly. So inevitably, I think it was Rishi Sunak, actually, the Chancellor, who said that he didn't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good in getting schemes out. And so over the last few weeks, as people have raised issues with me, I have ensured that we've made changes, we've tweaked things. And when it comes to local authorities, there is guidance there for them. That guidance is not legal, it's guidance. So that means that when they identify particular cases where the guidance does not cover it sufficiently, they raise it with my officials and then with me in the first instance, and we give them a very quick ruling on whether that's working or whether it's not. So the obvious example is where somebody didn't register by the 17th of March for the small business bonus scheme. And I've said, look, if somebody can give me a good reason why they didn't register before the 17th of March, all the criteria for eligibility, then you should give them the money. Just get the money out, support businesses at a time when cash flow is key. And I'm not going to stop doing that. I'm going to keep doing that, whether it's on self-catering or on any other business. And what's satisfying now is to see some people emailing me in reply, having raised issues a few weeks ago saying this isn't fair. And they're now saying, we've got our money. Thanks very much. The UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak said early on in the crisis that no business that was viable before the crisis would be allowed to fail because of COVID-19. Do you think that will be the case in Scotland, in Sky? It would be my hope. So if you look at the criteria for that, that 100 million fund that we announced two weeks ago, what we're looking for is for viable, vulnerable and vital businesses to get support. So there will be some sectors that were struggling already. And a good example of that is actually the newspaper industry. So how we support the newspaper industry, which was already struggling with more online advertising, is challenging because those challenges were there before COVID. They'll probably be there after COVID. The way we're doing that is by advertising in, in local papers. But there will be some that were struggling already. There are others that are perfectly good businesses that have taken a huge knock. And that's why this is an economic crisis unlike any others. I do not want to see the fail. I cannot replace 100% of their lost income, but I can and I try extremely hard to provide them with a lifeline to get them through. That's either moving their fixed costs, so obviously given 100% rates relief, to businesses in hospitality, tourism, leisure, retail. 
We've also tried to support mortgage holidays and, and such like. The UK government has uh, done that predominantly. So dealing with their fixed costs and then secondly, trying to give them a bit of extra help with, with cash. So that mixture of wage support through the furlough scheme, removing fixed costs through non-domestic rates relief and a small cash injection should hopefully combined help businesses through. And if that's not enough, there is always the banks as well, though I recognise why people are not inclined to take on debt at a time like this. The tourism sector is facing a, a triple winter, the winter of 1920, the winter of lockdown and possibly no season this year, followed by the winter of 2021. In that case, businesses are going to need support until probably this time next year. Will they get it? So I, I fully agree with your analysis there that the hit to the tourism industry has been utterly profound. And I'm acutely aware of the, the pressures on them from a constituency perspective, from a government perspective. I read all my emails and I, I see anxiety and the worry. That support, I do believe, has got to outlast the immediate response. So the tourism industry and other industries will need support beyond June. I am in no doubt about that. Where we can, we have extended that support for a full year. So, for example, there will be no rates for those who have qualified for 100% relief for a full year. The grant scheme can apply up to, I think at the moment it is certainly uh, the beginning of, ne of next year. The furlough scheme is the key one, though, because that is due to run out, I believe, in summer. And I think that the only option here is to extend the furlough scheme. I think it has to be extended in order to support businesses because the worst scenario is that businesses feel any obligation to return to work when we know that lockdown is still required in order to protect people's health. The chief executive of the Scottish Tourism Alliance, Mark Crothall, has said uh, this week that businesses have now exhausted their reserves. So we are entering an even more critical phase of a crisis. What's your reaction to that, that there is no money left in these businesses? I think that's a, a fair analysis and it resonates with the analysis that we see internally in government from the consultation with businesses. It's also why we're looking at life after lockdown, because we have been clear that yes, there is a health harm. Yes, there is a wider societal harm, but there is a profound economic harm just now. And the impact on livelihoods, on jobs, on the money in people's pockets is a huge area of concern for government. And that's why the document published last week is looking at, well, how do we start in a phased approach getting some businesses back to normal? It will be a new normal and it cannot be at the cost of people's lives. But we do need to think about life after lockdown, start getting these businesses moving. But I don't think that the tourism industry as a whole will find it as easy to bounce back as other areas because there will still be travel issues in terms of, you know, even from a, from a domestic perspective, we want to be in a position to welcome people back. We can't do that until the health 
concerns have been alleviated. So this has got to be done carefully. We continue to work very closely with the UK government to see how else we can support business with that initial response. But more critical than that is how we give people the confidence to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that one day they start trading. And until then, it's incredibly hard, but support available with support from the banks, we hope that people will be able to get to that point where there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Kate, we've just had some really shocking news from NHS Highland that uh, the home farm care home, there are 28 of the 34 residents have tested positive for COVID-19 and 26 of the 52 staff. These are really shocking figures. They are shocking figures, and I imagine that the community is reeling from the confirmation of these increased numbers. And obviously, you know, my thoughts are first and foremost with those that have tested positive residents and the staff. But clearly there is uh, an impact on their family and on their friends and on Sky as a whole. Now, we know that, that COVID-19 is an invisible virus that can strike any community at any time. And it's now become a reality for the Isle of Skye. And I think what's important now is to ensure that the response is quick, it is robust, and that further transmission of the virus is halted in its tracks. And I've been getting briefings from NHS Highland who have moved quickly to ensure that staff and residents are tested, that everybody is contacted, that their households are contacted to ensure that they self-isolate. We've also seen increased testing capabilities being moved to the island. So there was already testing capacity in Portree. That will now be complemented by the testing, the mobile testing unit, which will be in Broadford run by the military. And I think at the moment, the key is contact tracing. So understanding what contact each person that's tested positive has had and trying to make contact with those individuals and halt the further transmission of the virus. So certainly the public agencies, whether that's the NHS, Highland Council, Scottish Government, I think have shown remarkable leadership in responding quickly in the last few days. But we need to ensure that further transmission is halted. This is going to be a huge job. I mean, if we just look at the 26 staff members who've tested positive, that's 26 households who've had contact over the last few days with who knows how many people. It's going to be a massive tracing job, isn't it? It will be a massive job. And that's why we need to ensure that the NHS have all the resources they need to do it. So firstly, of course, we need to make sure there's adequate staffing because of staff are self-isolating. And I know that NHS Highland have ensured that they've brought in uh, additional uh, staff to support that effort. But secondly, there needs to be an even more rigid uh, following of the guidelines by everybody on Sky. We know what those guidelines are. Stay at home, no non-essential work, follow basic hygiene. And if you have concerns, then it's, if you're showing symptoms, then make sure you get tested. And there will be that increased testing capacity on Sky. Do we know how this testing 
will be done. We're hearing that the army will be setting up a testing station in Broadford at the fire station. Is that for anybody who is worried that they may have COVID or can anybody turn up? Do we know? So people can turn up if they are showing symptoms of coronavirus. But the first priority will be to identify family and friends who have come into contact with those who have tested positive. So it's critically important that we start there. That testing facility has been open for a number of days. I know that there have been figures coming through on how many people are going for testing in Portree, for example, over the last few days. But the, the key here is in light of the fact that a number of the staff will have part-time jobs elsewhere, that we first and foremost identify who they've come into contact with and get them tested quickly. And if you know you've come into contact with them, then self-isolate. The, the rules are still the same. If you've been in contact, then make sure you, you self-isolate. Kate Forbes, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of the Skytime podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to the Chief Executive of Visit Scotland, Malcolm Roughhead. If you have a question for him, email simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. You can also email me if you'd like to sponsor or advertise on the podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, and stay in touch with family, friends, and neighbours. Thank you, Mark.